The earth is Yahweh's as well as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh? And who may rise in his holy place? He who has innocent hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to worthlessness and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall lift up a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Pehido Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? Yahweh strong and mighty, Yahweh mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift yourselves up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he? This King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. That's from Psalm 25 out of our one-year Bible reading this morning. And it's funny because last year at the same time, I recorded two different podcasts that were entitled, Who is the King of Glory? And it started from this same psalm. But we were looking last year through the Old Testament to answer this question, who is the King of Glory? And we saw him and we saw who he was as he led the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he led the people of Israel through the Red Sea. We saw how this king acted there in unbelievable ways as he led forth his people. We answered the question, who is the king of glory? And we saw just like this Psalm announces, it is Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. And today it's funny. I was going to open up this podcast in a completely different place, but I got up early this morning, got my coffee and came in and sat in front of the fire And when I opened up my one-year Bible this morning and I saw this psalm, Psalm 24, I'm sorry, earlier I said Psalm 25. When I saw this psalm, Psalm 24, I knew that this is where I had to start again. Last year, we answered this question in the Old Testament, who is the King of glory? But today I'm starting something new. Today, I'm going to start with you a study verse by verse through the book of Matthew because I want to answer this question again. Who is the king of glory? But this time, we're gonna have Matthew and the book of Matthew answer that question for us. You see, all through their history, even back As far as we can go into Genesis 12 in the Bible, all throughout Israel's history, they were looking for the one. They were looking for a king. They were looking for a Messiah. And Matthew, if you turn to Matthew in chapter one, and we open up this book in the New Testament, Matthew is going to announce to the Jewish people and to the world, 
He's right here. He's right here. The king has come. The long-awaited king has come. Who is the king of glory? He is Jesus, the Christ, our Messiah. And I'm going to tell you, as we open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 and look at this genealogy, that the task I have in front of me, like I felt so many times, is completely impossible. Because I want you, the next time you open your book, your Bible, to Matthew chapter 1, I want your heart to beat fast when you look at this this list of names. I want you to feel the weight and wonder of what has happened, of what has come, because the Jewish people had been waiting so long. But now he has come, he is here. And the wonder of this list of names is the plan of God in our hands. Jesus, would you do a miracle in the hearts of the people listening today? Would you make their hearts beat a little faster as they look at the wonder of who you are and the wonder of what you have done in bringing us your son? It was impossible. But you, our God, are the God of the impossible. And your name is Jesus the Christ. We praise you. All the nations will praise you. Jesus, lead us today. So before I open and we, before we begin to look at this list of names, I'm going to take you to two places, to two verses that are stunning to me, some of my favorite passages in the Bible. And we're going to start in the book of Daniel, if you'll turn there with me so that you never forget this. Turn with me to the book of Daniel and look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. It says this, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days was seated. It's my favorite name of God. I love that name. The Ancient of Days was seated. His clothing was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with fire. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out before him, and thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and came near before him, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom 
that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not be taken away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. When, when we, as we go through the book of Matthew, one of the things we're going to hear as Jesus refers to himself, he often refers to himself as the son of man. And while it is true that Jesus Christ was the son of man, we, we talk a lot about in Christianity how he was both the son of God and son of man. And he uses that title because he was a son of man. But make no mistake, the Jews knew what Daniel 7 said. And Daniel 7 spoke of a king, and to this king would be an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting dominion. And make no mistake about it that when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, he was referring to himself as this king. Look with me now in Matthew 25, 34. We've gone to this verse, if you've listened to this podcast, many, many times. And it's similar. If you, if you read through all of Matthew 25, you will see the setting right here is similar to what we just read in Daniel 7. It's at the end of time when Jesus is calling in the people and calling in the people of his kingdom. And then he will say, it says in Matthew 25, 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And I want you to understand something as we look into this passage of Scripture and as we begin to look through the entire book of Matthew. The entire book of Matthew will be talking over and over and over about a kingdom. And make no mistake about it, Jesus Christ is the king of this kingdom portrayed in Daniel 7. He is the son of man who came before and who will stand before the ancient of days. But it says this kingdom was prepared before the foundation of the world. And that word prepared is so amazing because that word in Hebrew, it, it's talking about the preparation of a road that a king will come in upon. Meaning if a king was going to come and the road, the road needed to be set, sort of like if, if the president of the United States is coming into a certain location, they're going to block off the roads and they're going to prepare the road for his motorcade. In this same wor word in ancient days, if a king was coming, they prepared the road before him. And what I'm going to suggest to you today as we open up our Bible and look at the genealogy in Matthew chapter one. I'm gonna say these names and these people 
And these stories are indeed the road that God prepared at the foundation of the world to bring us to his kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is about people. It's about people who will surrender themselves and who will walk with him. And Jesus Christ is gathering for himself a people. So keep that in mind. These names, these names are the road God used to prepare us, to bring, to bring us to his king and to his kingdom. So we open up. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in order to understand the significance of this, I want you to do something for me. I want you to understand why it is so important that the Messiah would come through this man, Abraham. It would be no other way. If a man was to be the Messiah, he had to come through the seed of Abraham because that is what God promised he would do. If you open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 12, we're gonna see and we're gonna understand this. But if you will, do do with me for a second. Do something with me. Open up your Bible to Genesis chapter one and put your finger there And then open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 12. And if you hold those pages in your hand, I love to do this. My father-in-law has done this in so many Bible studies that he's done. Mike has done this and I learned this from him. But if you open up and you hold in your fingers those 12 chapters of the Bible, you will understand that in those 12 chapters is everything that ever went wrong in the world. These 12 chapters that you're holding in your fingertips cover thousands of years. They cover thousands of years and in them is the total fall and corruption of mankind. At the time of Noah, God said, every thought and every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. And in these 12 chapters, God outlines the problem. But when you get to Genesis chapter 12, And if you hold in your fingers Genesis chapter 12 through the rest of the book, you will understand that is God's fix. And God is much more concerned. If you hold those pages in your hand, you will see and you will understand that God is much more concerned with the fix than he ever was with the problem. And Genesis chapter 12 came with the beginning of God's fix. Look with me, Genesis chapter 12, verse one. And Yahweh said to Abram, go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. 
and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God says here, and and Paul talks about this in the book of Galatians. He says, through your seed, and that is not seed plural, it's seed singular, through your seed, one of your seed, I'm gonna fix everything. Someday, Abraham, through your seed, through one of your offspring, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And in order to understand this, you have to understand what this word bless means. We've talked about this before and we're gonna talk about it again because it's so misunderstood. The word blessed here means to kneel. It means to kneel just like in Psalm 95 where it says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. This word blessed means to kneel down before someone who is greater than you, before a king or someone in authority, kneeling down as in worship and adoration of heart before a king. And let me tell you the problem with mankind The problem with the fall is that our heart is so corrupt. Our heart is so wicked that we no longer bow before him as king. We have removed him from the king and the place of king in our hearts. Jesus Christ came to restore that. And those who will willingly bow themselves before this king, he will wash them of all that sin. He will wash them of all that corruption and he will walk with them. And he yearns to walk with you in intimacy day by day. So so this says that Jesus Christ, the seed, the seed of Abraham is going to come and is going to fix this problem. Just like it says in Philippians 2, that though Jesus Christ, although existing in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, what's going to happen? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Abraham said, God said to Abraham, excuse me, God said to Abraham, through you, all 
of the earth will be blessed. All of the families of the earth will be blessed. At the foot of Jesus Christ, he will restore that. And one day, every single person will recognize that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Back to Matthew chapter 1. So we see that it was necessary that the, if, if the Messiah was going to come, it had to come through the seed of Abraham. That's what God had promised would happen. But I, I want you to remember something. That the miracle of the story of Abraham is that Sarah was barren. And not only was she barren, but she was old. She had completely passed the phase of life where she would be able to bear children. Completely. Today we'd call it menopause, right? Someone in menopause does not have a baby. And what I love is that from the very beginning, from the very beginning of God's fix, God presented a completely impossible situation to show that he is the God of the impossible. Will you take a moment with me just to think that through? The entire fix of mankind began with an impossible situation. What are you facing right now? What is overwhelmingly impossible for you today? Let me remind you that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. We see in our genealogy that Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And I want you to see, if you know your Old Testament, you will see that God began to pass on his, this blessing to specific sons. I can't go through all of it. I can't go through all the stories because this genealogy basically sums up the Old Testament scripture. So we see that Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac was the father of Jacob and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. But look with me, if you will. There's something special in the Old Testament about a blessing. And we're not gonna go into that now, but right before he died, Right before he died, Jacob blesses his sons. And the blessing of the, his sons was sort of like a, pro, a prophecy of what was going to happen with them. And God had determined all those years ago exactly whose line and whose son would bring forth his Messiah. So look Look with me at Genesis 49, chapter 10, as we, as we see what Jacob and how Jacob blesses his son Judah. It says of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is 
the, the ruling staff of the king. The ruling staff of the king shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. That's a messianic term, until Shiloh comes, until the tribute comes to him and to him shall be the, the obedience of the people. All those years ago, Jacob's going to die. And he put his hand on the, on the shoulder of his son Judah. He said, a king is coming. A king is coming to you and it, he will not be just any king, but unto this king will be the, the obedience of all the peoples. Now tell me, does that sound to you like Daniel 7? Does that sound to you like Matthew 25, 34, about this king who is coming, who will have dominion and all of the peoples? All of the peoples, Philippians 2, will worship at his feet. And Matthew is shouting to us, Remember this, Shiloh has come. The ruler is here. And the scepter shall not depart from his hands. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez was the father of Hezron. And Hezron was the father of Ram. And Ram was the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. And Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now I could go back and I could, I I spent so much time. I've spent weeks and weeks looking over these verses because I wanted to know the stories. I wanted to see the flesh and blood behind these names. And I, and we don't know a lot about some of these people. We don't know a lot, but I encourage you is one of the reasons why I love the one-year Bible. Because each one of these men have a story. And search it out. Search it out because these stories are the pathway to the king. And these men led to the son of Jesse, David, the king. You see, not only was the promise of God that he would come through, that the king would come through Abraham, that the king would come through the line of Judah, but he would come through the line of David, the king, to understand this. And this is crucial. This is crucial to your understanding of of the nature and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So if you will turn with me 
to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. We will, I want you to know and understand why, because over and over again, we're going to see the people in the book of Matthew say he had to come through the line of David. Why? Why is that so important? The book of 2 Samuel is going is, is gonna to come and is going to tell us. I'm not going to read all the verses. I'm going to give you a, a summary. David had become king and he had built for himself a nice house of cedar. And as he was sitting in his nice house, he, he looked around and he asked himself, how in the world is it that I live in this house of cedar and the ark of the Lord is out in the dust? And the Holy of Holies is simply in a tent. And he thought in himself, I'm going to build for God a temple. I want to build for God a beautiful, everlasting temple. And this wasn't a bad thing. This wasn't a bad thing, but I do want you to know and understand that this is not what God had ever originally intended. God allowed a temple to be built through Solomon. God allowed a temple to be built and it wasn't wrong. David so wanted to worship God and pour out his feet something beautiful. That's not wrong. But the tabernacle and the tent of meeting is what God had established to live among his people. And don't ever believe that the book of Leviticus isn't important. It is incredibly boring. It is incredibly boring. But the, but the tent of meeting and the tabernacle and the feasts all proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are important to our understanding of scripture. And I don't have the time to go through it now, but I just want you to realize that the tent was such a beautiful picture of God living with his people, of God moving with his people, of the, the, the blessed God, the holy God, the, the gold offerings in the temple, the, the, over, the, the things that were overplated and, and, and that were made of gold living right in the dust. Isn't that a picture of who our God is? The holy of holies coming down in the person of Jesus Christ and living in the dust with us. The book of Leviticus is so important to the study of scripture. But David said, I want to build a, te- I want to build a temple. And God answered him and said, no, I, I am not going to allow you, David, to build me a temple because David was a man of war. He didn't want David to be the one to build him a temple. He said, your son will build me a temple. But listen to what else he says. 2 Samuel 7, 12. God said this to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 18, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God had told David, no. But listen, I'm going to do something for you that will be so great. I'm going to build you a house. And he's not meaning a house as in a building. It's a household out of your house that I'm going to build with you. A king will come. He will rule forever. Does it sound familiar? Does it sound like we heard in the line of Judah? Does this sound like the king, the son of man who would come before the ancient of days and the obedience of the people would be through this man? Matthew is declaring the king is here. Shiloh has come. The son of David is coming and has come. His name is Jesus. But as I was reading through the one-year Bible just a couple years ago, I, I saw this in 2 Samuel and it just floored me. Look with me at David's prayer of gratitude to God. When David had said, or when God had told David that he would be king or a throne would be established from his house and it would rule forever. It says this, it says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, not just for the house of Israel, not just for the house of Judah, not just for the house of David. This is his instruction for mankind because Jesus Christ would come as the savior of the world, not just the savior of Israel. So when you look at the genealogy in the book of Matthew, and you see these names, and you see this road that's been prepared for a king through the lives of all these men, this right here, and these stories, it's for everybody. These stories are instruction for mankind, and the lineage of the Messiah is that the world may know that he rules over all and he shall take dominion and all people will bow before this great king. Now, unfortunately, it was such a great time. David was such a great man. I love that he says, in his prayer, he says, but you know 
your servant, O my God. You know my heart. He was not worthy of this. But God looked into his soul and through his many failures, God said, you are, you are a king. You are a man after my heart. And I'm going to give you a house and a kingdom that will rule for all. But unfortunately, we see that David had a son and his name was Solomon. Solomon started so great. Solomon built the temple of the Lord and Solomon fell. The word of God says, do not marry, intermarry with the foreign women for they will turn your heart from me. And that's exactly what happened to Solomon. Solomon had a son. His name was Rehoboam. He was wicked. And because of the wickedness of his heart, God ripped away and divided the kingdom. There were 12 tribes that David was king over, 12 tribes that Solomon was king over. But in the time of Rehoboam, Rehoboam was wicked and God said, I'm going to snatch that kingdom right out of your hands and I'm going to give it to a son, another man. His name was Jeroboam. But God said, because of my covenant with David, even though Rehoboam was wicked, desperately wicked, God said, because of my covenant with David and because of my promise to him, I will let you still reign as king over the tribe of Judah. And the rest of the book of the Kings and the rest of Chronicles, you will see the kingdom is divided. And the book of Israel and in the land of Israel, there was kings from all different tribes and there was conspiracies and killings and everything. But God was faithful to his covenant with David. And each one of these kings, we see Rehoboam, Abijah, a wicked king, Asa, from the line of David, King Asa. Beautiful, beautiful stories until he fell at the end. Jehoshaphat was a good king. Joram was wicked. Uzziah was wicked. Jotham was wicked. Ahaz was wicked. Hezekiah, a good king. But Manasseh was the most wicked of all. You can go and read about it in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles because at the time of Manasseh, He desecrated the temple of God. He set up foreign altars to foreign gods within the temple and he sacrificed his son to Molech right in the temple of God. And God said, this is a wicked thing. This is a wicked thing that you have done and I will punish this kingdom. Miracle of miracles, Manasseh fathered a son named Amnon and became the grandfather of one of their greatest kings of all, Josiah. You can read his story in the book of 2 Chronicles. And Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And at that time, The kingdom had become so absolutely wicked. God used King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian empire to come and punish his people and to wipe out the kingdom. 
from their hands. And let me just tell you that God, God's word is so sure and you can press his word and you can press his word and his word is always done to the very last. And God had made a promise and I'm not gonna go there now, but God had cursed the family line of Jeconiah because Jeconiah was so wicked. And he said, never again, never again will there be a throne or will there be a son to rule from the line of Jeconiah. And God brought the Babylonian empire in and he wiped out and there was never again to this day there has never again been a king that would sit on the throne in Jerusalem God said it and it came to be but listen some might ask how then How then is it possible that the king, the eternal king, the Messiah could come down through the line of Jeconiah? I love the word of God. This is Joseph's line. And if you think that doesn't make sense, how can this be from the line of Joseph? Joseph was just an adopted father, but listen, an adopted son, Jesus Christ as Joseph's adopted son would have every right to the throne as one that came from his very blood. God's word will not be thwarted. He had put a curse on the sons of Jeconiah and no son of Jeconiah, no bloodline of Jeconiah would ever rule as king again. And that was fulfilled. Oh, but, but God, nothing is impossible with God. Because Jesus Christ came through the, through the virgin birth, but the kingship and the line of the king came through the line of Joseph. It had to. It had to come through the line of Joseph. The line of Joseph in Matthew gives the Messiah, Jesus Christ, every right to be the king and to take his kingdom. The line of Mary in the book of Luke gives Jesus Christ the blood so that in his blood runs the blood of David, of Judah, of Abraham, all the way back to Adam. The Bible can not be thwarted and you can press it and press it and press it and it will always come forth as gold. God cursed the name of Jeconiah and no son ever ruled, but Jesus Christ is king because he does not have the blood of Jeconiah, but he has every right to the throne by the adoption of Joseph. After the deportation to Babylon, back in Matthew 1, chapter 12, 
We see Sheetiel, Zerubbabel, Abihud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, Akim, Iliad, Eleazar, Mathen, Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Now, it really bothered me that I knew so much of the stories of all of these other men, and then all of a sudden, I got to these names, and I didn't have anything. I, I wanted to know, who are these men? Who are, what, what were they facing? It, it just puts flesh and blood onto them. So, although I could never tell you the exact stories of any of these men, I went back and I did a little bit of research on my own to learn about some of the life and times because the Bible doesn't record their stories. But I'm going to tell you, when I began to look into history, I didn't learn anything about the men themselves, but I learned about a lot about who they were and and the times and the culture that they were living in. So, We do know that Shetiel and Zerubbabel, they were governors. They were not kings, but they were governors. In um, back when the temple, the second temple was being rebuilt, God brought his people back from Babylon into their land again. And Zerubbabel was the one, the governor of the land when they rebuilt the temple. Then we have Abihud, Eliakim, and Azor. And I, I, I just, I thought, thought this was so interesting. And maybe if you're his, history buffs, if you're not, you can pause this. But this was really exciting to me because right at this time, between Azor, verse 14, Zadok, Akim, Iliad, Iliad, right in that time, we know that after the, the Babylonian empire, the Persians took over and the Persian um, empire then we have the Greco, the, the Greek empire. And with the Greek empire comes a man named Alexander the Great. He reigned in about 333 BC. And I found out one of the most fascinating stories about Alexander the Great. Because I wanted to know who were these men? Who is Zadok? Who is Akim? Now, I don't know exactly who they were, but I can tell you what was happening in Jerusalem around the time when they lived. Alexander the Great was taking over all of the nations. And as he did, he was what we call Hellenizing all of the people, meaning they had to take on the Greek culture. And the Jewish people were scared out of their minds because they knew Alexander the Great was coming for them. And they knew he was not happy with them because they were not choosing to be Hellenized. They were not choosing and they wanted to continue to follow their own customs, their own law of God. And they wanted to continue to follow the God of the Bible. And Alexander the Great was marching straight for Jerusalem. And you know, when we read in the book of Esther, when when the people in the book of Esther were about to be annihilated, what did they do? They fasted and they prayed. 
And I read about this time in Jewish history through the man of a Jewish historian named Josephus, very, very famous historian, Josephus. And he wrote about when Alexander the Great was coming to Jerusalem. And he said, all of the people, all of the priests were fasting and praying and calling on the name of their God to save him because they believed they were about to be wiped out. And one of the things they decided to do, they decided to dress in white. All the people, all the priests were gonna dress in white so that when Alexander the Great was coming, was marching, had his chariot and was marching towards Jerusalem, all the people are in white and they stood out. All of the people except the high priest and the high priest would wear purple. And this is exactly what happened. Alexander the Great was coming with all of his armies. He's coming with his chariots and he approached Jerusalem and he saw before him a sea of white. And he said, what in the world is this? And he got down off of his chariot and he approached the priest and he approached the high priest and he stopped. And he took notice and he said, I have seen this man before. He said, your God came to me in a dream and he showed me your high priest and he commanded me to march and to take over. And the high priest at that time, we do not know his name, took Alexander the Great and he showed him the prophecy in the book of Daniel, which outlined exactly what Alexander the Great would do. And Alexander the Great was so struck by what he saw that he entered into the temple of God and sacrificed a sacrifice to the king of heaven, Yahweh. And he asked the Jewish people, what would you have me do for you? And they said, we only want to be able to continue to worship our God and follow the law that he has given us. And Alexander the Great granted their request. Why? Look with me in Psalm 22 real quickly. Psalm 22, verse 25, of you is my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise Yahweh. May your heart live forever and all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh and all the families of the nations will worship before you, Genesis 12. Why? For the kingdom is Yahweh's and he rules over the nations. 
He rules over the nations. He rules over the nations, and Alexander the Great was no match for Yahweh the king. Yahweh does as he pleases. So listen, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid when you look at our world today and see the craziness that's going, that's going on. You don't have to be afraid of what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and Afghanistan and China and North Korea and the United States of America. And you don't have to be afraid of what's going on with coronavirus and all the ways that this has changed the world. Why? Because the kingdom is Yahweh's and he rules over nations. So maybe Zadok, Akim, Eliad, Matthew 1, 14, were they one of the ones who were wearing white? Were they in the crowd as Alexander the Great approached? Were they fasting? Were they praying that God would save him, would save them? God answered their prayer and once again saved the Jewish people. And Iliad was the father of Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan was the father of Jacob. We do know that after Alexander the Great, this is the last story that I'm going to share. We do know that after Alexander the Great came, and was sympathetic to the Jewish people. His kingdom was divided into four. It was divided, and and the only one that the Bible records was the king of the north, the king of the south, the Ptolemies and the Seleucid Empire. And for hundreds of years, these two empires were fighting over rule in Jerusalem. And maybe it was one of these men or during their time. That we get to the time of history about 154, so about 150 years before Christ, came the reign of the Syrian Empire and a wicked, wicked king named Antiochus Epiphanes. You see, Alexander the Great was kind to the Jewish people. Antiochus Epiphanes was not. And he commanded the people to take on the Greek culture to be Hellenized. And if they did not, they would die. Those who did not conform to the new laws of this king would be burned alive. And the Jewish people at this time had to make a choice. And I'm going to tell you, many, many, if not most of them, went the way of Antiochus Epiphanes. But I do know of one family that did not. And that is the story of the family of the Maccabees. You see, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, he had outlawed circumcision. 
He had outlawed the celebration of the Sabbath, the festivals. He had basically outlawed the worship of God. And his, his greatest act of wickedness was when he went into the temple of God and sacrificed a pig on the altar to Zeus. And actually Antiochus Epiphanes, if you look in the book of Daniel, Antiochus Epiphanes is actually a type of or a picture of what the Antichrist will do at the end. But at this time in Jewish history, these names and these of these people right here were, were facing the decision, will I follow my God or will I conform to the demands of the king and be burned at the stake? And one man, his name is Mattathias, and his family stood up and said, I will not conform. And I love this story. I love, and I, and I, 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 it just, it just has been overwhelmingly, overwhelming me in, in the past weeks as I've looked into the story of the Maccabees. They were a family. Um, actually, the story goes, the history goes that, um, one of Antiochus's king's men came to Mattathias. Mattathias was a priest and came and said, you must make a sacrifice to Zeus. And Mattathias, knowing he could be burned alive, said, no, I will not. You want to know what happened? Another Jew, another Jewish priest came and made that evil sacrifice instead. And Mattathias was so overcome with zeal for God and zeal for his temple that just like Eleazar in in the Old Testament, he took a sword and he slew that priest who had defiled the altar of the living God, and he slew the king's men who had commanded it. And at that time, a revolution began that was led in the coming years by his son Judah, nicknamed the Hammer. Judah Maccabees started a revolution. Something like guerrilla warfare, where they were going to come against this entire empire and would not put up with what they were doing to the God of Israel. You want to know what happened? The Maccabees won. The Maccabees won. All the odds were stacked against them. There was no way this could ever have happened. But they God was with them and he rules over all. And he was with the Maccabee family. He was with Judah and they went in. The story of Hanukkah comes from this, the dedication where, when, when Jesus goes in and celebrates in John chapter 10, the feast of dedication, it's the feast of the dedication, the rededication of the temple in the time of the Maccabees when they cleared out the temple of the altar of Zeus and purified it to their God. 
and they only had oil for one day on their menorah. Miracle of miracles. God had the oil last for eight days. That was the miracle of Hanukkah. Jesus celebrated it at the Feast of Dedication. And could it be, could it be that when we look at this genealogy and we look at these names, could it be that some of them, could it be that some of them were fighting with the Maccabees and retaking the temple of God? Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The Maccabees, also known as the Hasmonians, ruled until Herod the Great took over and brought in the birth and the time of Jesus Christ. Listen, this is this is the bloodline of the king. This is the preparation these men, these stories, this history. It's the preparation for the king and Matthew knows, and the Jewish people know, the king can only come through the seed of Abraham. The king has to be a son of Judah. The king has to be from the line of David. And Matthew is announcing to the world, is announcing, remember, this is instruction for mankind. And Matthew is announcing to the world, he is here. He is here. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Because in him, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. It's very interesting. The Jewish people, why do you think in the Bible, there's all of the genealogies? The genealogies were so important because through them came the king and they had to know no king could claim to be the Messiah if they did not have the genealogy of the king. It's so important. It's so important important. And let me tell you, once the king had come, they didn't need, God did not need the genealogies anymore because Messiah had come. And in AD 70, when, the, when Jerusalem was once again destroyed and the temple was destroyed, so were all the genealogy records and no man no man can ever claim to be Messiah again. But I want to finish with one thing, and I, and I didn't mention this before, and I didn't mention it on purpose. In the Old Testament times, in their genealogical records, all through the Bible, we always see 
um, the genealogy passed down through the father. And this struck me today, right before I was beginning to prepare this, I, I did want to mention the four women who are in this line. And it is so important because if you look at the women, we have Tamar, we have Rahab, we have Ruth, and we have the wife of Uriah named Bathsheba. Tamar was a prostitute through incest. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabitess, and God had said about the Ammonites and the Moabites that no Moabite could ever enter into the assembly of the Lord. And the wife of Uriah had a son through adultery. Now, there were a lot of other godly women in this line. Why in the world did Matthew choose these four? It struck me. It struck me this morning as I was thinking about it because listen to Matthew's testimony. You see, Matthew was a tax collector and tax collectors were hated by the Jewish people. So in Matthew chapter nine, verse nine, we read this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he stood up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, in Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So maybe, just maybe, Matthew is telling us something about this king by sharing this part of his genealogy. Don't you think Matthew could relate with this? He was one of them. Everybody lumped him together with the prostitutes and the sinners. And so in his genealogy, when Matthew is writing the genealogy of the Christ, what does he do? He puts the prostitutes and the sinners right in there with him because Jesus Christ is a king. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And look with me just at two of these women. Rahab, she was a prostitute, but she didn't stay one. 
she left her life. She left her life and went with the Israelites and and married a man named Salmon and was the mother of a godly man named Boaz. He turned away, she turned away from wickedness and followed Yahweh and linked herself up with him. And, and, look, and look with me and think with me about the story of Ruth. She was, a, she was a Moabite, but she told her mother, I forsake everything that I am and I will go with you and I will go with your people and I will worship your God. She completely turned away from her heritage and united herself with the God, Yahweh. Because this is the story of God. He did not come to call the righteous but sinners. And listen, make no mistake about it. Jesus Christ is King. And we are going to see throughout this book, the book of Matthew, that he came to get for himself a kingdom. But the kingdom of God is for people just like Rahab and just like Ruth. Who will turn. Who will surrender at his feet. Who will worship him as king. And we'll walk with him day by day by day. These are the people he came to save because he takes people just like you and me, just like Rahab and Ruth and washes them white as snow and gives them a whole new would not want a God like this? Who would not want a king like this who gave everything so that prostitutes and sinners and people like Matthew could be made new? Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And the invitation is here for you and for me. Oh, won't you walk with Him today? Surrender to Him today. His kingdom is worth it.